So today's theme is poetry, and for those who uh, haven't been with us, we're just trying to get better at interpreting the Bible. Uh, I agree with my college professor, who actually was one of the co-authors of the main uh, book that we're using, this one, to guide our, our lessons here on hermeneutics. That's the science slash art of interpretation, hermeneutics. Um, he said Bible interpretation is like 99% Holy Spirit. You know, 1%, you need some good tools. Uh, but you can have all the right tools and not the Holy Spirit, and, you know, you'll, you'll miss a lot. So we're trying to do the 1%, maybe, maybe a little more than 1%. It is useful to have some good tools. Um, half the Bible, I'm sorry, one-third of the Bible these authors would argue, I quoted it later, I think it's in one-third. I may be making up this stat, like all stats that are made up on the spot. Um, let me just go to it before I pray. There, it is one-third. One-third of the Bible is comprised of poetry. So if you want to understand the Bible, you have to be able to follow and engage with poetic expression. Uh, if you don't want to do that, then you're going to be lost a third of the time. So today, that's our focus, that's our theme and I'll give you a great poem that's not a Bible verse to begin our time. It came from Clyde Cranford, and uh, he wrote a little compilation of poems in the last few years of his life called In the Night Watches, because he wrote 100% of them in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep, uh, but he would just pick a verse or a passage that he had memorized, and he would meditate on it until a poem popped out, and he would write down his poetry in the night watches, and one of those poems is a meditation on a few verses about God's love, and it says, may the awareness of thy love so fill this trembling heart of mine that when I reach my home above, no image may I bear but thine. A likeness to Christ on the basis of meditating on his love. Well, poems just pack a lot of stuff in a little space, and they do it in a way that touches our emotions as much or more than our intellect. They help us to say what we feel, and biblical poetry is a lot like that. Well, with that in mind, I'm gonna pray for us, and we are going to jump in. Father, we pray back to you uh, a poem, a, a, a sonnet that you gave us. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Both our mouth words and our heart meditations make both of those pleasing, acceptable to you, to you, our redeemer, our savior, the lover of our soul. Help us today to grow a little bit in our ability to understand and apply the poetic sections of scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've already mentioned our focus is poetry and just a few marks, uh, remarks about uh, introductory stuff. I've already mentioned that our authors say on page uh, 373 that a third of the Bible is compi comprised of poetry. Where might we find some of that? Tell me. Psalms, where else? Where? The prophets? Where else? Revelation has poetry. 
Yeah, so Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, every book, quote, every book of the Old Testament has some poetry. Uh, I was just reading through Kings and Chronicles and just bumping in. Your Bible sometimes will just indent and center the poems or songs, uh, the song of Moses, the songs of Deborah and Barak. So um, on page 375, our authors say that the different genres of the Bible, sorry, I got it, there we go, are similar to the different museums uh, that comprise the, the uh, city center of DC, the Smithsonian Institute. And you can go in one of them and see very scientific material, Air and Space Museum. You can go across the street and see a very different kind of material, um, the Museum of the National Gallery of Art. Much of the New Testament is like that propositional, this leads to that, leads to that. You can see the logic and the flow. Many of the poems of Scripture are more like that Institute uh, of Art. The Old Testament poets, Deval and Hazrite, write much differently than Paul in the New Testament. Like the paintings in the National Gallery of Art, they appeal primarily to our emotions. Furthermore, they do not build complex grammatical arguments, but rather they use images and pictures, word pictures, like a painting that convey what they are meaning for us to understand. This doesn't mean that they ignore logic. It certainly doesn't mean that they write illogically. It simply means that they focus on emotional aspects more than on logical aspects. So sometimes you can become a heretic pretty quickly if you take a biblical phrase from poetry and apply it universally, literally. We know that poets are not meaning for their words to be taken like that. We'll deal with some of those uh, today as examples. Paul is also in the New Testament in his logical syllogisms and propositions, he's not devoid of emotion. I have unceasing grief in my heart for my kinsmen. He's not devoid of emotion, that's Romans 9, but his focus is primarily on reasoning. So if they say accurately that a third of the Bible is poetry, let's just talk by way of introduction about some differences between epistle, New Testament letters, and Old Testament poetry. I'll just point out a few. Um, Epistles would appeal more to logic and poetry more to emotion. There'll be rational arguments as the centerpiece, like 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26, today's sermon text, has a very logical, rational argument, the main point, of today's passage is at the end, it's the motivation for why you would want your life, let me say it better, why you must want your life to be a channel of the grace of God into the lives of other people. Why must you want that if you're a Christian? Well, today's passage tells you very explicitly at the end, so it has a very rational argument, whereas in poetry, images are more central and finally syntax and grammar all the stuff that we tuned out uh, in high school English and grammar classes um, all that is critical to analyzing letters whereas figures of speech images pictures portrait uh, those things word plays are more critical to analyze in poetry so four things I want us to see are three in a conclusion elements of Old Testament poetry 
how to interpret Old Testament poetry. And since the Psalms are exclusively poetry, we'll talk about some unique aspects of the Psalms. Um, first, those elements of OT, Old Testament poetry. There are three things that I want us to see. Uh, this may be a new word for you, terseness, structure, and figurative imagery. Old Testament poetry contains a lot of those three things. So first, what is that terseness? What does it mean to be terse? Well, here's a definition, page 376. This simply means that poetry uses a minimum number of words. I don't know if you ever tried to write a poem. You should do that. It'll expand part of your humanity. Uh, it's good to do. Uh, one of my kids was having to do one, uh, uh, write a poem for one of their homework assignments in the last couple of weeks. Uh, poetry forces you to exercise a muscle, and the main muscle you exercise is how to say a lot of stuff in a little space. That's what poetry does. It packs a lot of punch in as few words as possible. So, minimum number of words, that's terseness. Here's an example from Psalm 25.4. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Well, that's logical and propositional, you might say, but it's in the middle of a larger poem, and it's very terse. All right, the second thing is structure. This is where we're going to spend most of our time on the elements of Old Testament poetry. Um, this is something we need to start to learn to pay attention to. I said in last week's sermon, it's it's very important to have a good translation of the Bible. We think there are lots of them. Um, we dealt with that in one of our earliest lessons on hermeneutics. Praise God for people like Ben Bailey and churches that record these things, not because we think you're impressed by going back to listen. But if you want to know a good translation of the Bible, Ben recorded and put on our Grow podcast um, an argument for why we think a bunch of them are good and why we think a bunch of them are useful if you just want big picture idea, but not necessarily for studying specific words. Well, that is, uh, that episode's available to you somewhere in the archives of this class, which is on our Grow podcast. Well, structure, you can see it even in your English Bible, provided you have uh, a good translation. So what, two things we'll see about structure. Uh, I, I'm not very happy with my own slideshow, but we're going to see parallelism. You see four things underneath that. And I'll go ahead and show you and then back up. We'll also see acrostic. So things that are parallel and things that are acrostic. Let's go back and just look at each of these. Parallelism is the dominant structural characteristic of Old Testament poetry. The poets are not only using words to convey meaning, they're also arranging words so that we can gain the meaning. The words are very specifically selected, but the order of the words and how they relate to each other, that's, that's poetry uh, in short. Most often, lines rather than sentences represent a unit of thought in poetry. Groups of lines often contain the whole thought. Usually, two lines in a poem contain one idea, one thought. It may be negative positive, it may be similarity, but those two lines work together 
to contain a thought. So uh, if things are parallel, it can show up in a lot of different ways. Here are four examples. Synonymous, developmental, illustrative, and contrastive. Synonymous, Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Well, that's synonymous language. He laughs at his enemies. He scoffs at his enemies. It's not introducing a new idea. It's expanding on one idea. Developmental. The second line of the poem further develops the idea that's presented in the first line. If we pay attention to this, it's like dragging a plow deeper. And God means for us to grasp something more full about the idea when he does this. Psalm 121, verse 3. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Well, why won't he do this? Because he's always awake. Illustrative, this is an idea that's presented in a poem and then an illustration that helps us to understand it better. It's like instead of living in a closed room with no windows, illustrations put windows in the room. Ah, that makes sense. Psalm chapter 140, verse 7. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer. There's your idea. You shield my head in the day of battle. Can you imagine Old Testament warfare, two armies approaching each other, the archers are just flinging arrows in the sky, and there you are, and you're under a little shield, but you're not holding it. God's holding it, and the arrows aren't hitting you. It's an illustration. He sovereignly, strongly delivers us. How? By protecting us under his shield in the day of battle. Contrastive, lines one and two are not building an idea, they're opposing ideas. They're contrasting one thing with another. This happens all the time. Psalm chapter one, verse six. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, line one, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those are contrasts. And if we start to see that in poetry, we'll be able to pick up uh, more and more on the intended meaning. There are a lot of other types of parallelism as well, but we'll look at those four for today. Acrostic, Hebrew alphabet, okay? Uh, our alphabet is A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The Hebrew alphabet also shows up a lot of times in Old Testament poetry by way of acrostic. What is an example of this? You guys know. Yeah, Psalm 119, there's actually a number of these. An acrostic is when each successive line of poetry starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's many examples of this in the Old Testament. It may not just be each line, it, it could be each verse. For example, the first letter of each verse in Psalm um, 25, 34, and 145 starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
Well, there's 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet. How many verses do you think are in Psalm 25, 34, and 145? 22. Except that the first verse doesn't count. Because oftentimes the first verse is an introduction. The Lord reigns. And then 22 verses following the Hebrew alphabet that are an acrostic that unpack that idea. If you start to notice that, you'll say, oh, I need the whole alphabet to see the reign of the Lord. It's okay to take one of the verses, but you start seeing it in its poetic context and you'll see that it all really is containing one main idea. Not only are there acrostics where the first letter of each verse, 22 verses, Psalm 34 and 145, there are also acrostics where the first letter of each line is part of the acrostic structure. So these psalms have 22 lines, not 22 verses. And each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Alphabet. So I, I mentioned just like the others, there might be 23 verses because the first verse says in Psalm 111, praise the Lord. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. The next 22 lines, not 22 verses, are following that acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Hope that makes a little bit of sense. You can start to notice that even in a good English translation. Okay? So there's parallelism. That's part of poetry. Acrostic, that's part of poetry structure. And then the final thing I want to say about an element of poetry is not just its terse and its structure, but its imagery the figure, figurative imagery. So a few things about this. Um, Duvall and Hayes say, I, I agree with this. The major medium through which the Old Testament poets communicate is figurative imagery. This represents that. They do not write essays. They paint pictures. The colors with which they paint the pictures are figures of speech and plays on words. English does this all the time. I bombed that test. Literally? Like, did you nuke it? Did it explode? No, nobody thinks you did that. That's a picture. That's figurative language. That meal was golden. Did it break your teeth? No, you know what that means. We do this all the time in English, and we need to understand that the Old Testament poets are doing the same thing a lot of times. Page 381 of Duvall and Hayes, the authors are conveying real thoughts, real events, real emotions to us. It is literal truth, but they express it figuratively. We need to be able to pick up on this to follow God's thoughts and minds. Some of the figurative in imagery of the Old Testament is analogy. You know what an analogy is. It's drawing a connection between two things that are different. Mom and dad are going to be as mad as hornets, right? Mom and dad aren't turning into a hornet, but there are some similarities that the kid is anticipating. The Old Testament employs a wide range of analogies. I've put five of them. Yeah, well, seven of them because the last one has three. These are kinds of analogies, and you see them all the time. You just intuitively understand them, but it's helpful to start to pick up on them 
so that we can more deeply understand. You don't have to memorize these lists. These are more muscles that you use that you don't even really know you're using because you just continue to use them all the time. And yeah, it's, it's helpful to start at least to see that they are there. Simile, Proverbs 11.22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Okay, it's a simile, a metaphor. You see these all the time. You use these all the time. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a metaphor. Indirect analogy. This assumes the reader can make a connection. And if you can't make the connection, you can't understand the, the poetic expression. Psalm 18, 16, he drew me out of deep waters. Well, was the psalmist in the bottom of the ocean? Literally, no. Some of you are in deep waters today. Psalm 18 would be a, a great comfort to you. God draws his people out of those depths. Hyperbole, Leland Riken said hyperbole is a conscious exaggeration for the sake of effect. Does the Bible ever exaggerate? Yes. Psalm 42, three. My tears have been my food day and night. Do you think he did not stop crying for a literal 24-hour period, maybe. Do you think he got full eating them? Maybe. That's not the psalmist's point. The point is that the sorrow is overwhelming. All right? Personification, anthropomorphism, and zoomorphism. Personification. This involves attributing human features to something that's not a human. Psalm 24, verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. Well, gates don't have heads on them, at least not human heads that function like them. Anthropomorphism. This is a fascinating study in Scripture. I commend all these studies to you. But anthropomorphism is attributing human-like characteristics to God. Well, God doesn't have a face or hands or a back. He doesn't have feet. Jesus said God is spirit. Well, an anthropomorphism represents God with human features and characteristics. This happens in Old Testament poetry habitually. Psalm 27, 8, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Tons of anthropomorphic language in, in the Bible. And then zoomorphism would be when an animal image is used for God. So not a human image, but like Psalm 91, 4, Rick's, uh, Rick's psalm. Uh, he can sing it for you. He will cover you with feathers. Under his wings you will find refuge. That's zoomorphic language. All right, so that's figurative imagery. That's one part of it. The second part is substitution. When something is taken away for another thing, it's removed and replaced, cause and effect. Proverbs 19.13. A foolish child is his father's ruin. Or Jeremiah 14, instead of Jeremiah saying, warning, 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 siren, siren, Babylonians are coming, it's going to be bad, he could have said that. He instead says, after he insinuates the impending Babylonian invasion, let my eyes overflow with tears. He's, he's using 
that language to describe the effect of what's coming. He's doing it, doing it poetically, though he's feeling it very deeply. That's Jeremiah 14, 17. Representation, uh, that's effect and cause on substitution. Representation is, uh, you may have heard this word before. I haven't heard it, you know, probably since college and seminary Bible classes. Synecdoche, synecdoche, synecdoche. There we go. S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Representation. That's when poets use a representative part of an entity instead of the entire entity itself. Here's an example probably from today's news. I didn't read or listen to today's news, but if Washington and Moscow cannot work out these issues, then blah, 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 blah. You know that that speaker or writer means D.C. represents the U.S. Moscow represents Russia. So that's representation. That happens all the time in Old Testament poetry. This represents that. This represents him. All right, finally, a uh, lot of other things like miscellaneous. <laughs> you just throw everything in that category. Word plays. Uh, they don't fit into nice, neat packages. An apostrophe would be like Psalm 210. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. That's when a person or thing is, that's being described is not present. Well, those rulers of the earth weren't sitting in that study when the psalmist was writing that sentence. And he's saying, you all be warned. That's an apostrophe. Irony, the writer is saying the exact opposite of what he actually means. Job 38, 18. Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, since you know all this. You don't know that. That's ironic speech. God speaks in irony in Psalm, uh, pardon me, Isaiah 41. Tell us, you idols, since you already know what's going to happen. They don't know. Word plays, that's very common in English. Um, Jeremiah 30, uh, 3, 22, return faithless people and I will cure you of your backsliding, literally turning Turn, faithless people, I will cure you of your turning. Return. The way you should turn. That's a word play. Okay, well, we don't have time, so I'm going to go super quick um, and end us in just a couple of minutes. One comment I want to make about a pastoral care matter uh, right before I conclude. So I'm going to stop here in one minute and stop there in three minutes. Um, Psalm 116 has been a precious psalm to many of us. We love the Lord because he hears our voice. Therefore, we beseech him to save our life. If we were to take those four verses and walk right through what Duvall and Hayes call the interpretive journey that we've been talking about in this class for since January, how to interpret scripture, there's a process, a journey. Then if you see those words very quickly, you could grasp the text in their town what did that mean to the biblical audience? You could measure the width of the river to cross. What are the differences between them and us, like living in different covenants? You could cross the principalizing bridge. What's the theological principle in the text? Duvall and Hayes say the big idea of Psalm 116, 1-4 is that God's people should express their love to him, knowing that he hears us even in our greatest difficulties. And he fully intends to deliver us, this is a theological principle, having proven that in the cross 
It may be eternal deliverance, not temporal, but the principle is we praise him in our distress. We call out to him in our sorrow because he will deliver us. That's a theological principle that goes uh, throughout scripture. Consult the biblical map um, is the next step. And how does the rest of scripture fit with the rest of the Bible? And then finally, grasp the text in our town. Here's an application that Deval and Hayes give from Psalm 116. For Christians actually facing death, this text should give assurance that God will deliver us from the power of death through the resurrection to eternal life. Christians should express our love to God. That's actually today's sermon. Uh, for delivering us from eternal death. Okay, well, I don't have time for these unique aspects of the Psalms, but I am going to just click through the slides. Uh, don't interpret them like you would Romans. They are very different. It is poetry. It is not epistle. Um, they say the Psalms give us inspired models of how to talk and sing to God. Uh, I like that. And I like this last quote. The Psalms give us a guide to serious worship. They help us relate honestly to God. They lead us into reflection and meditation on what God has done for us. I love that. A guide to serious worship. Not trite, not superficial. Real life, serious worship. Being honest with God. They give us verbiage for how to talk when we feel uh, every season of the soul. You can find an Old Testament poem, probably a psalm, to help you express that feeling in a way you know God will accept. Well, I keep saying I'm not going to read, but I keep reading. Um, I'll leave this one up here. Uh, poetry shows us God's not boring, infinite variety, helping communicate with every aspect of our humanity. 